All right, again. Parshas Bahar. Parshas Bahar. Chapter 25. Parachavei. Pasuk Aleph. Hashem spoke to Moshe at Harsinai saying, and immediately everybody's going to be jumping at this because didn't Hashem tell everything to Moshe at Harsinai that's meant to be given over? So we'll get into this shortly. But Hashem spoke to Moshe at Harsinai Lamar to say over. Now a big, big, big focus. Let's just give a, a, a general idea of what the entire parsha is going to be about. There's a lot of mitzvahs that go on in our parsha. We start out with the mitzvah of Shemitah. It moves on to the mitzvah of Yovel. We have the mitzvah of not lending on interest and not harassing people financially, the uh, servants, so on and so forth. There's so much that goes on, particularly in this week's parsha, with financial matters. A lot of the, a lot of the financial matters, and a lot, and, and therefore there's a lot of limudim. There's a lot of things to learn, particularly in how these things all come back to noticing Hakadosh Baruch Hu in our lives. So the, f- the first area that we focus on is Shemitah. The first mitzvah is Shemitah. Tabra b'nei Yisrael. Moshe, you should speak to the children of Israel, the, the, the sons of Israel, right? There's a, you, you gotta throw this joke, it's such a rabbi joke. Uh, there's, a, there's a kid in class who raises his hand and says, Rabbi, you know, you've been telling us about how the, how the, you know, the b'nei, is, the b'nei Yisrael, the, the children of Israel, they, they left Egypt, he says, yeah, and they crossed the Yamsuf. Yeah, he says, what were all the grown-ups doing the whole time? Like, what, you know, <laughs> all the children of Israel. All right, Rabbi Jim. All right. So speak to the children, of, speak to the b'nei Yisrael. V'amart aleim and say to them, when you enter the land, that I, that I will give to you. Right now we're by Harsinai. So Hashem, when you're going to enter, the you should know that there's going to be a Shabbos for the land. It's going to be a Shabbos for the land. Okay? It's a fascinating piece from Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, Rashid of the Mir, Levracha, who explains the very high Madrega this year in a Shemitah year. So many of us, you know, Baruch Hashem, with technology, we're able to become aware of the mitzvahs that are, uh, that are taking place and the, the amount of, of struggle that are, the amount of, uh, of struggle that it really takes for somebody to give up on their parnasa for the whole year. And the reason why this is so crucial for us, even if we don't live in Eretz Yisrael, is because what we need to understand is that here in Gullus, here in exile, outside the land of Israel, we really only have um, one opportunity to really give of our... Um, to give of our... Shouldn't say one opportunity, but give our finances a rest, and that's one day a week. One day a week, we have Shabbos. Okay, now Shabbos can uh, prove at times to be, uh, you know, financially difficult. At least on the surface, it seems like this. We know those of us who understand the words of Chazal, we know that ultimately it's ne- it never happens. It's impossible for a person to take financial losses because of Shabbos, even if it looks sometimes as a short-term loss. Really, in, uh, it's a long-term gain. Shabbos is the Makar HaBracha, as we say in the Shabbos Miros, the Shabbos songs. It's the source of all blessing. But be it as it may, the Torah is telling us that actually that's once every seven days. There's a Shabbos that happens for an entire year. So imagine, right, even though, like, okay, hopefully, you know, we're able to reach a point where Shabbos is not a day where we can't do things, but a day of where we do do 
things that have to do with relationship and we don't view it anymore like, like uh, refraining. Rather, it's an active, beautiful day of Shabbos. To be able to do that for a year, for an entire year, that, that's, that's a whole different, that's, that's different. That's, that's a whole, and the Kliyokar, actually we'll get to your question in a moment, but um, the Chinuch, uh, the Chinuch who counts out the 630 mitzvahs for us, so he, ca- he counts Shemitah as mitzvah number 84, okay? He says this is mitzvah pei dalit, and he says that the Shoresh, the root of the reason for the mitzvah of Shemitah is to instill in us that Hashem created the world, and Hashem can take away anything that exists in the world whenever He wants Whatever he wants to be taken away. Interestingly, every 50 years, land always went back to its initial uh, ownership because we, we don't own anything permanently. And the Chinuch adds that even though this is the root reason for Shemitah, he says, he says you should know there's other benefits with our Midos. So even though Shemitah is teaching us that Hashem owns the world, but Midos-wise, first of all, it teaches us Vatronus. Vatronus means, Vatronus is, is to give. Is to give of, of things that we have, to be mevater, right? Is to forego. When I own land and I work my land and all of a sudden I have to leave it and let anybody who wants walk through a land that I, walk, I worked hard on, that is a, that, that's a big deal for <laughs> something to work on our midos. That's a PhD in midos right there, right? It's like, whoa, you, who, who are you to walk into my field and, and really take whatever you want? So he says, number one, it increases vatronus, and number two, it increases bitachon. Bitochun, different than Amuna, Bitochun is reliance. We're really forced not only to have the Amuna, but to stretch that and to learn to rely on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So to which the Kliyakar interestingly asks, but don't we do that every Shabbos? He says, I do that, you know, we do that once a week. So why do I got to do it once every seven years? And um, uh, the Kliyakar actually gives a, you know, we're answering that there's a difference. The Kliyakar gives a different answer. The Kliyakar actually says difference between a regular Shabbos and the Shemitah year is that he disagrees for the purpose of Shemitah. He says, Shabbos teaches me Hashem owns the world and runs the world. Shemitah teaches me there's no such thing as nature. That's what he says. There's no such thing as Teva. Sometimes we view something called Mother Nature and then miracles. Shemitah teaches us that there is no Mother Nature. Everything, nature is in and of itself a miracle. And the proof is Hashem's going to promise if you do keep Shemitah, in some way, shape, or form, you're going to get it back plus. <coughs> you will never lose it. As difficult as the year Shemitah is, it's going to produce, the year before is going to produce more, the year afterwards is going to produce more. It's a promise. It's a promise Hashem gives. So if it's a promise that Hashem gives, that's letting me know that there really never was nature originally. <coughs> Everything was, is just coming from, from miracles. Okay, yeah, go ahead. And maybe I don't understand this right, but if I'm a farmer and I keep Shemitah, mm-hmm. and then there are organizations around the world that helps collect money to support me, how does that work? Okay, so the question is, if I'm a farmer who keeps Shemitah and they have all these organizations trying to raise money internationally for me, how does this work? Does it have to do, does it help? Maybe it's taking away from my, from my ability. Right. Okay, so a few answers to that. Uh, I'll say two primary answers to that. Answer number one is there's a big difference between being independent and being dependent. Because even if I'm dependent on tzedakah, that takes that's a, that, that takes a lot of a, a blow to the ego. 
So, since there's an ego blow, there's still a emuna and bitachon that's necessary, and the message the message remains. The message still remains, even if there are those who are helping me out. That um, Hashem owns the world and Hashem runs the world. That doesn't change. The second point is is that they're not bringing in near the income that they would anyways. Even with all the money that's being raised, that actually is coming from our end. If somebody is in need of, of uh, tzedakah, or, you know, I would venture to say, even if somebody's not in need of tzedakah, sometimes people are in a pinch financially, and they could use the extra few hundred dollars. You're not poor. You could use the extra few hundred dollars. Is there a mitzvah on us to give tzedakah? Yeah. Is the person a tzedakah case? No, they're not a tzedakah case. But there's still, the Torah says... That you that included in tzedakah is you give de machsoru you give according to the needs of the person. So if a person is going to have to, if a person has specific needs that they ha- that they have, and we can't help them out, we still got that mitzvah. So to answer your question, these campaigns to help them out is an absolute mitzvah of tzedakah on our behalf. But are those people like getting a chilek in? You're getting a, a part in making the mitzvah easier for these farmers. That's what, you know, that's really, uh, okay. you know, that's really how it works. You know, there's a fascinating Gemara. It's a fascinating Gemara. Um, it brings down a story of a doctor whose name was Abba. Dr. Abba. And the Gemara says that Abba had a heavenly voice come down and give him a shalom aleichem every day. Every day a heavenly voice came down. And I think it was Abaye, one of the sages. He felt terrible because Abaye only got a Shalom Aleichem from heaven once a week. And he was trying to figure out what's unique about this doctor. Gemara tells over a fascinating story. And, and they, so he wanted to like, watch him and see what's going on in this doctor's life. And the Gemara says he went to the office. I'm going to leave some details. I don't, you know, I, didn't, I don't have the Gemara in front of me. And I didn't look it over before. He went to the office and he saw that everybody was treated the same there was no receptionist there collecting payments. There was a box in the corner. Everybody paid the same amount. He refused to take money from Tamidei Chachamim. And he made sure that when he would give people physicals, he, they were, he was able to do it in a way where they were able to remain there. They were able to retain their tznias. Nobody would remain uncomfortable. And you paid, you didn't pay. He didn't know a whole thing. Fine. And Abaye walked out, he says, that's somebody who, when Hashem made a human being, he was thinking about that type of person. I understand why he gives a, a hello to Dr. Abba every day. That's, that's, in a nutshell, what's happening. So some of the commentators explain, like, it says that he, he wouldn't allow a Talmud Chacham to pay. He wouldn't allow a Talmud Chacham to pay. You could have rich Talmud Chachamim. You tell me the with businesses. It's because people think, oh, if you're learning Torah, that, that you, have no, you have no right to have money. Rebbe Yaakadosh, the greatest sages, they, were, they, they had businesses, they had things, right? And they were also, they were all Tamil Chacham. But it says Rebbe Abba refused to take payment from the Tamil Chacham. Why not? If the guy could afford it, why, why aren't he taking payment? So one of the approaches to this is, is that it didn't matter to him. He understood, what, he, what this doctor wanted is that I, he wanted to be connected to, to offer something to a life that to him was meaningful. 
So he wasn't only giving because there was necessarily a need. He wanted to be connected to that. He, he felt there was a schus. The Avatamar Chacham, the same way you, you stand up when an important person, an elderly person, somebody walks into the room, no matter whether or not you're gaining something from them, whether, they, whether or not they need the kavod, they don't need the kavod, they don't need you to honor them by standing up, but it's on me. It's on me to show that I want to connect to this. I want to be part of this. And, and that itself is, shows what Dr. Abba is what Dr. Abba's about. So going, going back to the, the um, you know, these, I don't know what they call programs, these collections, these, uh, when, you know, that they have for the Shemitah farmers, I think we should view it like it's a schus. It's a schus to, to help somebody do a mitzvah. Somebody wants to do a mitzvah. So whether or not, you know, they, you know, they're not becoming rich off of this. That's for sure. They're not like, they're not making more money than they otherwise would have had. So, yeah. I mean, you know, going by the basis that everything comes from Hashem, it's just Hashem's way of using that charity in order to, in order to take That's care another, of That's another, oh, very so, nice. Very nice. Very nice. What Robertson Fields is saying is that maybe these collections are part of us playing a role within Hashem's plan of giving them the money that He's promising them. Yeah. Planting it into the seeds, that's a beautiful concept as well. You know, we're all shluchim, we're just messengers of Hashem's will. Very nice. It'll be a emes, absolutely. Okay. Um, fine. So, why is Shemitah said next to Harsinai? Again, that was our question. It says, Hashem spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai, and he tells him the Mitzvah of Shemitah. So Rashi immediately kicks in, the Rishonah kick, kick in, everything was given at Har Sinai. Why are you telling me this? So there's various answers, I'll just share one, and one is actually something we already explained. Shemitah is a proof to Har Sinai. Because this is one of the areas in the Torah where Hashem says, test me. God says, test me on this. You know, when it comes to tzedakah, Hashem says, you could test me on this. And when it comes to Shemitah, Hashem says, you could test me on this. Hashem promises what's going to happen if you keep the mitzvah of Shemitah. The fact that we have the mitzvah of Shemitah lets us know about everything else at Harsinai, that, that, it's, uh, you know, that it's, it's coming straight from, from uh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which, again, as we've uh, spoke out a few months ago, you, touches on the difference between Harsinai and the creation of the world. The creation of the world was only legend until Harsinai came about, which is why our entire basis of Emuna is not does not go back to creation of the world. Our basis of Emuna, when we become Jews, that's Harsinai. Because of because of George Washington's cherry tree. If did George Washington chop down the cherry tree? Maybe uh, maybe no. Doesn't really matter. If somebody were to tell me it never happened, it wouldn't destroy my life. Why not? Why don't I take that so seriously? Because how many people were there? At max, George and his father. At max. Right? So did it happen? Now, all the stories that we hear. There are a few people there. So it's legend. You believe the story. You don't believe the story. You're not obligated to believe it. And it's not part of history. But we can understand that the Holocaust, people who are unfortunately Holocaust deniers very shortly after, you know, within our own lifetimes for some of us. It's like, what are you, Meshuggah? You're crazy. You're off your wall. Why, why is the Holocaust? Why, why are you off the wall if you don't believe in the Holocaust? Because it's history and it was witnessed by millions. Harsinai was witnessed by minimum three million people. Which is why every religion believes in Harsinai. Every religion means every large American religion. The Christians, the Catholics, Muslims, they all believe in Harsinai. Because you can't argue something that three million people were part of minimum 
you can't say it never happened. So the only thing you could say is, is that God changed his mind afterwards, there was a sin, and then whatever. He wanted to restart. Fine, Givaldic. You can make that up, you want to make that up, you can do that. But Harsinai is a greater is is a greater place for our Amuna than six days of creation. Nobody existed during the six days of creation. Adam and Eve were put there at the end of the sixth day, going into Shabbos. Okay, in the afternoon, they had a little more time. They, they were able to have uh, a couple kids uh, before Shabbos started. Okay, fine. But there was nobody there. So our whole knowledge of my Sebaratius is only because of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Since it says in the Torah that we personally witness God giving us the Torah, all these things, so now we know for a fact that it happened. That's why it's so, so starting from creation of the world where nobody was there, so we didn't know it was true per se, or you could believe, you could believe it if you want, but it, was, it, wasn't part of, it wasn't part of history until Matan Torah, understand? <laughs> huh? Until there were witnesses. Three million plus, when not only two witnesses... Three million plus, and when so many people witness something, that that's now history. That's not legend anymore. That becomes history. That becomes a, a fact, something that it's part of. So that's the that's the um, the the Torah here is continuing that theme, interestingly, and saying that's Har Sinai, and now we're going to Shemitah. Where Shemitah, when we keep Shemitah, that doesn't only we, we no longer only know that Hashem was revealed to Klaisho, that God the Almighty was revealed to Klaisho, but that God follows through on everything that he promised at our Sinai that is, that is seen through Shemitah. Because Shemitah is this incredible promise that nobody in the right mind could promise, that I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you all these things. Okay. So the Torah tells us the, the, uh, the mitzvah of, of Shemitah. And then it says... Uh, Gimel, for six years you should plow your field for six years you should prune, prune your vineyards and you should gather in your crop I'm laughing over here because for sure I've shared this there was, when, I was in, when I was in Yeshiva in Lakewood we had a Yeshiva joke I for sure shared this it has to do with Shabbos okay? the joke goes like this and I'm going to say this because it's no longer a knock I just find this fascinating and tell you what I'm, let me let you into my mind a little bit I just get, you got, I don't know, my mind works funny so I'm laughing because of the following. My brother sent me a text message. Today's Lag Vaymer, so I shaved. My brother sent me a text message. There's Allah, you're allowed to shave. A, a man is allowed to shave during, during Sphiras Omer for business purposes. If you're concerned, you're going to lose money because you're unkempt. So there's no, you're, you're allowed to shave. You don't have to be, even if you're nervous about it. Okay, you feel like you're not put together, whatever. My brother sent me a text. It said, uh, Bro, if you think you need to shave during Shemitah, because uh, dur- during uh, Asiris Eimer, uh, for business, just know three quarters of the Hasidim have a lot more money that you'll ever have, and they never shaved in their lives. All right? <laughs> that, was, that was his. So, 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 with that joke in mind, I'm reading this Pasuk, and it's reminding me of a joke that when I was learning in Lakewood, so the joke was that when... By the mitzvah of Shabbos, the, uh, um, Hashem went and offered the Torah to everybody, all the nations. So first he went to the sons of Yishmol. They said, what did it say? He said, you're not allowed to steal. They said, oh, Yishmol only survived as a bandit. You know, when Avram kicked him out, and Avram and Sarah sent him away, we need to steal. That's how it, fine, we don't want it. So then he goes to Esau, and he says, take my Torah. They said, what does it say? He said, don't kill. 
So what do you mean? Our whole blessing is Bechar Bechasichia. We're going to live by the sword. We can't give that up. We don't want the Torah. Then Hashem went to Lakewood. <laughs> and they said, what does it say in the Torah? God says, it says work six days a week. They said, no, not for us. That was, that was, <laughs> that was, that was the Lakewood joke. You know, we're going to learn. We're going to learn. So the reason why it's so funny, the reason, so the reason why I'm laughing about that now is because now when you look at Lakewood, it is a powerhouse. And if you just read up on this, it's amazing. The, nationally, the amount of productivity in business that's coming out of this township in the hundreds of millions of dollars and new, just new businesses that are popping up. They don't, these businesses are being built so fast and it's exploding so fast that they can't keep up with hiring people. It's like, it's, it's an amazing thing. You just look at this. It's wild, the amount of, uh, the amount of wealth that's going on there. So I'm, I'm learning here. Huh? And yeshivas, yeah. Oh, next year they're opening up 14 new high schools for boys are being opened up. In, in, yeah, yeah. 14 mesifstas just for boys. It's in, it, thousand, every year there's thousands of kids entering pre-K. and kid, it's, it's mind-blowing what's happening over there, how it's, how it's all exploding. So but I was, that's where my mind went. I'm reading, six years you should plow the field, and the seventh year you shall rest. So <laughs> that's, when I'm reading this post, like, I'm that, that, it took me back to that, which took me back to my brother's, uh, my brother's text message of, sh- of shaving during sphere. All right, be it as it may. All right, in the seventh year, Shabbos, Shabbos, and Yel Aretz. It is a, uh, the seventh year of Shabbos for the land. You got to leave it. You can't do anything, okay? You can't, uh, you don't harvest, you don't plant. Nothing doing. Fine. Not only that, the year after Shemitah, every seventh Shemitah, the Torah says, there's going to be an additional year you're not allowed to work the field. What we call Yovo, the Jubilee year. The 50th year as well, you're not allowed to work. So now you're going to have these farmers, and by the way, all of us, because we need to eat. So you're going to have two years where there's nobody working in the field. There's no, no plowing, no planting. I mean, where's all the grain coming from? Where's the fruits coming? How's this all happening? So in the 50th year, the, the Torah says, is, uh, is called the Yovel. What happens in the Yovel year? See, here we go. In the Yovel year, they're going to blow shofar on Yom Kippur. The Yom Kippurim on Yom Kippur to Aviru shofar The shofar has to be sounded everywhere throughout the entire land of Israel. The Kidashtem, and it will be sanctified the fiftieth year across him through our barats, and there's going to be freedom throughout the land. Yovel, he, this is Jubilee, this is Yovel. All the land, not only is it not allowed to be worked, but all the land goes back to the, to the ancestral heritage. And anybody who was in servitude go, uh, goes free. Okay, why are we blowing shofar? What are you doing this for? So, the Chinuch, going back to the Chinuch, and this is now Mitzvah 331. Uh, of freeing the, the servant during the Yovel year. He says, the reason why we blow shofar during the Yovel year is because all servants automatically left and we want to arouse the masters to let their servants go. So in the, in the Yovel year, we would blow shofar. That was symbolic. Everybody who has a servant must let them leave. Why? So says the Chinuch, Something that we know, we, we refer to as, in America, it's called misery loves company. In halacha, it's called tsar rabim nechama. 
when the Rabbim's going through a, something, Nechama, that's part of the comfort, like there's other people in it with me, which there's a lot of depth uh, uh, psychologically to that as well. Um, but that's how we blow Shoifer. Now the obvious question is, how many days into the 50th year is Yom Kippur? Ten. Yom Kippur is always ten days after Rosh Hashanah, right? We call that Aseris Yimei the ten days of repentance. So you have the 50th year starts Rosh Hashanah. The Torah is telling me on the 50th year what happens to the servants? They're out of here. Ten days later, blow shofar to tell everybody to free your slaves. What happened for those ten days? Where were they? Why, why, why don't you blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah? I mean, no, we, we know we have shofar. Blow a long shofar when Rosh Hashanah is over. Blow a, another hundred blasts. Right, whatever you want to, whatever many more shofar blasts you want to do. Because hey, go do. Why are you waiting till Yom Kippur? Okay, wait until Yom Kippur. Any thoughts? Harvest, okay, okay. It is harvest season. It's gathering season. Final reminder. Kind of like you have ten days. Okay. Listen to what the Bali Musar teaches us. This is. You think this is like oh in Israel Yovel? This is mind blowing. It's amazing. Such a beautiful message in this pasuk. This is from the Rambam. Okay, Rambam and Hocha Shmita. The Rambam in Hocha Shmita, um, chapter ten, halacha fourteen, parak yud, halacha yud dalit, says. The master is obligated to free his slave as soon as Rosh Hashanah starts. But the Torah is giving us a message. This guy's been working for you. What are you going to do? Throw him into the streets? He doesn't. What are you doing? You're obligated, says the Rambam, to keep that servant for an extra week and a half. Feed him, take care of him. He's not working a stitch. Nothing. Until now he's been work. Now you're just allowing him to readjust the freedom. And that's also the obligation of an owner. The obligation of a servant owner is not to have a servant work for you. It's to make sure that this servant is taken care of. Even if you no longer own him. You do not own him once Rosh Hashanah starts. You're, also not, allowed, you're not allowed to kick him out of the house. You have to give space. You have to give... You, you have to... You have to uh, if you had him, you have, to, you have to make sure that they're able to readjust as well, which applies in so many, um, so many uh, practical ways. First of all, in, in the way that um, sometimes we can be impulsive on things and we want to just like knock something off and shift away from something, that's, that's not really the healthiest approach to ever go. It's not the healthiest approach to ever go. It, it really needs to be, a, a, you have to allow it to be a process. And to extend this, Deeper, and this is going to be deeper. And we we've, we touched on this a f- couple years ago in uh, the Perky Avos class. I shared from from my father nothing he ever told me, but something he always did. He never walked into our house or any bedroom in the house without knocking. He didn't always wait for us to say come in, <laughs> but he would never he never walked into my bedroom without knocking. I knew his knock. It was knock. Knock, 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 and then I'm. Co- he would say, "I'm coming in," you know, coming in, just out of respect. It's his house, but he would never barge in. He would barge in like, 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 shock somebody. Well, what? You know, what if I'm not dressed in a way that I wanted to see me? What if I'm doing something he did? A, like to to retain people's dignity, he always made sure to give a little bit of a warning. And I asked him, I asked him where he got this from. I was like, Todd, why are you always knocking? He never walked into the house. Right, the front door, it was, it was a knock, he walked in. 
So that's where he got it from. See, he told me, first of all, he said, sometimes he says, mommy's sitting around or the, uh, you know, sometimes they, you know, I just want to let people, you know, that know that there's somebody walking into the house. He said, but also, not that I'm a Kohen Gadol, but the Kohen Gadol always wore the pomegranate belts on the bottom. So people should know that he's coming, right? Who is the Kohen Gadol? And you should know, you didn't want to be like, oh, turn around, be like shocked. Like, you, you ever, you ever, even if you're in a room with somebody who, somebody else belongs there, but you're just shocked that somebody's there, it's like a little bit of loss of dignity. Uh, and nobody tried to do that. Right? It's like, you get a shock. He was always very careful to like, pe- we, we need the ability to, to we, we need the ability to, I don't even, what, how, how do we articulate this? To move from one thing to the next, to just segue from one, one moment to the next moment, as opposed to like, cut off, boom, just like that. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go around like this. Yeah, so this is like a transition from... From Rosh Hashanah, Aseris made Shuvah to... Exactly. That's the transition period right, right. that he went through, yeah. It's a transition process, you know, like any change process in any business or establishment, you've got to go from the old to the new, and there's that process in the middle right. that you go through, otherwise people can't um, accept it right. or, or adjust. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a hard place to be. Lots of books on it. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Because it's a, it's a tough space to be in. It's a, it's a painful place uh, to be in, but it's, uh, it's necessary. And people who don't... I, I think that... Um, I'm going to speak for myself. When we're used to a faster-paced world, it's very hard to have that patience. It's very hard. And um, we could be, you know, anybody who's involved in organizations, you're involved in a... A school, you're involved in a mikvah, you're involved in anything, anything that's going on. Any change, any... People are like, has to change right now. That's, is that healthy? Is that healthy? If it, or, or like, you have to let it progress. You can't, otherwise, like, hot and cold. Like, it's you shock it and it steams well out. How well you plan the, the change process is how well the change is going to occur. Yep, <clears throat> yep. And I, I think that's exactly, that, that's what the Torah is letting us know right over here, yeah. What do you, why Pesach? Because isn't that the beginning of the year? Rosh Hashanah is. Rosh is the beginning of the year. Oh, you're talking about from counting the months. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. We count the months starting from, from uh, Pesach, Nisan, actually because of our Amuna. Because, the, because Yitzhiyaz Mitzrayim happened that month, so that's where we became a people. But creation of the world... Which is what this is all about. So like, for example, we're in the year 5782. When are we changing to 5783? In Tishrei, not Nisan. We're changing Roshan. The, the numbers change Roshan, Dajay, and Nisan. And, and since all these are going back to our emuna that Hashem created the world, and Hashem owns the world, that continues to run the world, so that's why we're going to be using the month of Tishrei uh, for the freedom. Great, great point. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, what was it? Yeah. 
Good. Linda's saying you got, uh, you got circuits in four days. You got to buy a little Vanessa or a sukkah or something. You got, you, you got your holiday expenses coming up. It ain't easy. Beautiful. Great. Great point. Great point. So, so listen to this. This is amazing. This is amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Is it such, such a beautiful question? And this is probably, this might take us to the end, but it's worth it. It's worth it. There we go. What is a Jewish servant? What's a Jewish servant? How did, uh, how did it work? So a Jewish servant, okay, um, was somebody who the Gemara tells us was treated like an Adon, was treated like a master, to a point where there were... Huh? If you had one pillow. To a point where, if you had one pillow, you had to go to him. There were people who were, who were possible masters. To, why was somebody inevitable? Either they sold themselves because they needed employment. That was one. And it was kind of like the, the servitude was their unemployment. That was their way to be taken care of. Okay? And, and they're treated well. The other way is if you stole and you couldn't pay back, so you would work up until the money that you're able to pay back. However, whatever that value was, once you paid that back, the, you were out. There were masters that were stolen from, you owe me $1,000. And they would say, I prefer to take the $1,000 loss. I, <laughs> it's not worth it for me. The way I need to treat this guy? Forget it. Now, we're saying guy because it was never a woman. Interestingly, there's no such thing as servitude for a woman in the Torah. It's a very interesting, uh, very interesting idea. The only time you'll ever find a female servant is where the Torah refers to a young girl as an Amma Ivriya, a young maidservant, and she was only allowed to be a maidservant up until her bas mitzvah. Once a lady reached the age of bas mitzvah, it was forbidden, it, there's, there's no, it's forbidden, there's no halacha. It's, a, it's an impossibility for a woman to ever be a servant in halacha. It only applied to men. Only applied to men. Okay, now even the young girls who worked within servitude, it wasn't become they stole or anything. There's no halachas for them. It's age of mitzvah. But look at the name of Amma Avriya. My father would stress this all the time from her palm. What's Amma? So if you look in art school, they'll probably translate it as Amma Avriya, a maidservant who's Jewish. What's the root of the word Amma? Aim. What's an aim? A mother. Okay, what does that mean? That she was obligated to be treated... Like a Jewish mother. What do you mean like a Jewish mother? With respect. The only time you were able to become an Amavriya is if you had a family where the parents were incapable of financially supporting this girl. So the family was permitted to allow her to move into a household that would treat her as an Amavriya. She would, she would help out around the house. But she's called an Amavriya. She, she was like a mother's helper. Okay? That was the most they were allowed to work her, was as like a mother's helper, helping out with the kids and th- things of that sort. And this was only up until age 12. Once, uh, once uh, Amavriya reached the age of Bas Mitzvah, she was out. She was totally done. There's no such thing in the Torah as servitude. Um, once they got older and th- they gained that, uh, that independence from their parents. Once you're 12, so your parents don't have that same uh, financial obligation to the child. They're also, in our society, obviously, we're not... Sending you know child labor is is you know even at age twelve, but back then you know it was it was more accepted for kids to you know they had an education younger and they would start earning a trade once they reached their teenage years and things of that sort. But that's a that's a fascinating idea. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, they, none of them had to convert, but they all became part of the family. There, there was no Judaism yet. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so, when did these girls, because one of them was before Batum, so one was older than Batum. So I believe they were twins. They were twins as well? Yeah. So they were before Batum, right? Unless Lavan had them older, I don't know. We're not dealing with the halachas of the Torah anymore. Because they were coming from the house of Laban. So it was whatever he did with them. So I wouldn't include them in this, uh, in this category. It's impossible because Yaakov married two sisters. Right, right, but not, he wasn't in the land of Israel. Huh? He wasn't yeah, in the land okay. of Hanan at the time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so while they were in the land of Israel, they, they kept her. But this was not in the land of Israel, so okay. it is, yeah. Uh, but good point. Yeah, so be it as it may. So let's get, let's get back to what we were. Let's get back to what we were saying. And this was, we said we're going to focus on this, and I mentioned the concept of Amavriya, but that wasn't, the, that wasn't where we were headed with this. Oh, okay. Sometimes people wouldn't want servants because of the way that these servants needed to be treated. And this is going back to, again, to reiterate, your question is, what happens after those 10 days? They're unemployed. So the, the answer to that is we have to understand that even when they are servants, they're not like in lockdown, in shackles and chains with no ability to foresee their future or anything of that sort. They had particular responsibilities. And like uh, Rebetzin Miller was saying, if there was one pillow, it, uh, it, it went to them. Now here's, I want to share a beautiful idea. I want to share a beautiful idea. And this actually touches very much, if you, if you want to look a little bit later on in the Parsha, I'm going to give a little bit of a shear here, okay? A little bit of a class with a, with a beautiful lesson. In Parak Chafei, chapter 25, verse 36, Pasuch Avav, it says, um, Lamed Vav, I'm sorry, 36. The Torah says, you're not allowed to take or borrow on interest. You should fear Hashem. Your brother must live with you. Okay? Referring to another Jew. Another Jew must live with you. Okay? And if you lend on interest, they're not living with you. Various interpretations. The Hasidic, the Hasidic interpretations is, you know why they're not living with you? Because your lives are moving at a different pace. When somebody borrows on interest, their life is moving a little too fast for their liking till the day of repayment. It's like, slow down, slow down, a little more time. And when you're lending the money, you're like, I, I need time to speed up. So I've got to make sure this is repaid. So it says, you should live in the same, you know, that's a, a, a chassidish of art. But it, the, the Torah says, let your brother live with you. So now here's going to be the question. Two weeks ago, we learned in Parshas Kedoshim, does he live with me? Or do we say, remember, my life comes before my friend's life. If you have two people in the desert with a canteen, and they're both, if you both drink it, you're going to die. And if one drinks it, one will die. So we had a dispute. Barakapara says you should both drink and both die. Better not to see the death of your friend. Rabbi Akiva, who says the biggest rule in the Torah is to love your neighbor like yourself, says don't give it to your friend. You're obligated to drink it. What's the point of two people dying? And your, your life comes first. Here in the Torah it says your life doesn't come first. The, another Jew's life is with you. Seems to be equal. So how do we reconcile these two verses? One verse says, Another one says that your life comes first. So listen to this. After the Holocaust, so Rabbi, 
Rabbi Yosef Shlomo Kahanaman, who we know as the Panavizha Rav, the Panavizha Rav um, established orphanages in Bnei Brak. I think we shared this a few months ago. He, he established orphanages in Bnei Brak. They're still going on till today. And as the groups of children from, from Europe began to arrive, there was a problem. They had no mattresses, they had no beds, they had no place to put them. And it was very difficult even for people living in Eretz There wasn't any money. They, they themselves didn't really have much. And the, um, there was a, one Shabbos before a, a ship carrying a number of orphans was going to arrive in Eretz Yisrael. The Panavish Rav got up in Shul and he asked the following question. He says, the Gemara in Kedushin tells us, Davchaf, page 20, tells us that who, if you ever purchase a Jewish servant, it's like you're purchasing a master. Right? Why are you purchasing a master? Because if there's one bed in the house, the master has to allow the servant to sleep on the bed. If there's only one pillow, the servant gets the pillow. Okay, so listen to this, fine. Says Tosfis, Rashi's grandchildren, okay, on the Gemara. Tosfis asks, why if there's one bed or one pillow, is it going to the servant? The Torah says, Ki tovlo imach. The two of you need to be equal. So ask Tosfis, if he gets the pillow, if the servant gets the pillow, and the master doesn't, how's that being equal? Now he's got a bed, the servant has the bed, and the master doesn't. It's a good question. <coughs> oh, so you're saying, listen, so it's, uh, it's one or the other, right? It's one or the other. So if you've got to treat him like a master, right? So it's one or the other. So here, so here's Tyson's question. Tyson says, let them both sleep on the floor. Let them both sleep on the floor. This way we're the same. Kitovlo imach. We're together. Tysus answers, that would be the character traits of Sodom. That was Sodom. That's how the Sodomites, that's, that's how they lived. That was their problem. Right? We know this from, from Avos. What's the Midah Sodom? You, you, you take care of you, I take care of you. You're not having because I'm not having. Everybody's, right? They, do, they wouldn't allow collectors to come into Sodom. It was a very affluent city, very affluent community. Nobody was allowed to come for Tzedakah. It was, it was very like blocked off, very rigid type of place. Midas Sodom to say, if I can't have it, you can't have it. That's not a Torah way. And therefore, the owner's not allowed to have it because we don't know. I got to treat him like a servant. I got him like a master somehow. But the servant, you know, uh, the servant's going to be with me. Well, so he's ending up on the bed. Now, this is still leaves room for like understanding. Like, so, so, so what's happening? Like, is it only because of default that the servant's getting that one pillow? That the servant's getting that one bed? So it says the pun of Israel, a beautiful idea. He says, how could it be if kitovlo imach, right? How such thing possible? So he answers, it must be, I think this is what you were touching on. It must be that when the owner gives a pillow to a servant, he's putting his life first. No Jewish owner in their right mind is comfortable laying their head on the pillow in their house, knowing that there's another Jew laying on the floor in the next room on hay. I can't sleep at night. You hear this? So... Says the Panavish Rav, how's a Jewish owner going to sleep at night? If I want to have a good night's sleep, what am I going to do? Of course I'm going to give my servant the pillow. Otherwise, I can't sleep. Isn't that a beautiful idea? Putting me first is giving it to somebody else. That's how, that's why the servant is like the master. Okay. So the Panavish Rav looks around the shul, Shabbos, and he says, tomorrow there's a ship arriving with a whole group of young orphans. And I know that nobody here has an extra mattress or an extra pillow, but I'm just letting everybody know, if you want to sleep at night, 
tomorrow night, put your life first and make sure to give your one mattress to an orphan. That was his, that was his uh, message to the show. Yeah? So, um, so I think this is the idea. This is, what it, this is getting back to your question of how do they transition? Seamlessly. Seamlessly. You know what this Eved was taught during the time he was with the master? He was taught how to be in business, how to live, how a, a functioning Jew is supposed to is, is supposed to be successful. Because that's really what success in anything is. It's just, you go out there, you do the right thing, you be a mensch, you take care of others, you, you know, and you come up with a chap, you come up with an idea, you, you go to Lakewood, you come up with all these ideas, of how to, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. But that, so he wasn't obligated to teach a trade, but when, you're, when this servant was with, was with the owner, how the owner, how was the owner successful? He's, he's you know what, he's, the, the servant throughout his time is really, um, he's like an apprentice. He's, he's doing a fellowship. He's training. He's training how to be a successful person in society. But he still needs some money to get started in his own thing. Fine. But at least he's not in debt. But where did it come from? Wherever it comes you from. Go steal from steal again today. I mean, uh, hopefully just, the servitude was a rehab. You're just a slave yesterday. Today, I'm free. Today, I have no funds, and I want to go start earning money. I need some kind of supplies. Maybe I need some clothes. That's right. So you have what you have, and then you're starting out like anybody else. You've got nothing. Okay, I don't. I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer for that, but it doesn't bother me so much. It doesn't bother me so much because I think here's what I think. Here's what. Here's again, just just a thought. Once a person's been through that process, and it's not going to answer. If if you're like consciously bothered by this, I'm not going to give you a good answer. Okay, I'm going to be just straight up with it. But my thoughts are just to to wiggle this. Because of the way that this servant was demanded to be treated, he's learned to be a successful human being. And that's really all we can ask. Go do it. You know what to do. Now you know how to live. Go live. If you know how to live, you'll figure it out. You'll start working, uh, you'll start working at McDonald's and you'll, you'll figure it out. And you'll, 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 you'll start out like that. And then you'll... You'll learn to save a little bit, but at least you're not going out and stealing. We taught you, you now lived in a kosher environment. You lived in a, in a, in a place that was guided by Torah. And if the, if the servant, if the master is not guided by Torah, he's not allowed to own the servant. Mm-hmm. A servant cannot, if a servant comes to Bezdin and says, my owner's not treating me according to the Torah, we're not going to force him to stay. So this guy was there. He's being taught. He's being apprenticed. He's being trained in. Okay, that's, that's really the, the, the extent that we could go for him. That's that's uh, that'll be the response to that. Okay, we'll hold it here. Any uh, any questions, comments, anything?